I've talked a lot about Afghanistan lately, and one of the more interesting aspects of this is people who write about Afghanistan, both from a fiction and from a nonfiction perspective. Uh, hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Podcasts about national security and public safety. Okay, you're, you may be a little bit tired about hearing about Afghanistan. It is in the news a lot these days for the very simple reason that 20 years or plus after 9-11, it's making news for the very same reasons it made news 30 years ago. And that was when a bunch of antediluvian Islamic morons called the Taliban are back in power. And you've seen the headlines. Uh, girls are not able to go to school. Women aren't able to go to work. And it seems like a lot of what we tried to accomplish over the past 20 years after 9-11, when we sent soldiers and, and, and police and a whole bunch of NGOs and well-meaning people to try to help the Afghan people, uh, has gone nowhere. So I want to bring into this conversation somebody that I've recently made an acquaintance of and who's made a big difference in my life so far. So I'm thrilled to bring into the conversation Phil Halton. He is a former Canadian soldier and a reservist. He spent some time in Afghanistan, and interestingly, he has written both a piece of fiction about Afghanistan called Every Arm Outstretched, as well as a piece of nonfiction, Blood Washing Blood, Afghanistan's Hundred Year War. And to me, the most interesting and the most relevant is he's also the founder of Double Dagger Press, which is Canada's only press that deals with um, military and security issues. So, Phil, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Phil. It's great to be here. Okay. I, I would say it's pretty odd for somebody to take a topic like Afghanistan and write both fiction and nonfiction. I, I'm imagining that most people would have a speciality, like I'm going to write nonfiction or I'm going to write fiction. To you, are these one and the same thing in the sense that Based on your experiences in Afghanistan, was it a natural thing for you to do to both tackle this particular area of the world from both the fiction and nonfiction perspective? Well, you know, I, I can I can muddy the waters even more because I actually started off writing screenplays. Uh, so, <laughs> oh my God. okay, screenplays, fiction, nonfiction—that's got to be some kind of a unique thing in the world today. That's right. It's a, the triathlon of writing. Um, <laughs> you know, so my, my, what became my first novel uh, was my uh, second or third screenplay. Um, and it's, it's This Shall Be a House of Peace. Back in 2019, um, with Dunder Press, yeah. Right, yeah. And so it's, um, it's, inter it's, it's fiction about Afghanistan, but it, I'm trying to tell truth with fiction because sometimes it's easier okay. to tell truth with fiction than it is with nonfiction. True. Good point. Um, you know, because the origin of the Taliban um, is is murky, like the exact origin of mm -hmm. there's some legend around it. You know, it's uh, these kind of Robin Hood stories about how this this band of students, you, you know, uh, became uh, became the power that they became. And so I when I was in Afghanistan, I had heard a whole bunch of these different stories. Um, and um, you know, I had some thoughts on, on which were more likely to be true than others. Isn't there um, one story, Phil, correct if I'm wrong, that they had caught uh, some kind of t uh, Afghan warlord raping little boys or something, and they decided to string one up from the from the barrel of a tank? Is that what, Am I getting this thing wrong? Or that this goes back to the early 90s when they were sick and fed up with, you know, the sort of the post 
the post-Soviet era where the Soviets went back with their tails between, uh, you know, between their legs. Hopefully, they'll do the same thing in Ukraine coming up. And the Taliban took, uh, you know, warlords took over, and the Taliban were just fed up with these warlords essentially raping Afghan society. Is that is that one of the fiction stories you came across? It is, yeah, and that's that's kind of the Robin Hood story. And in some, it was. Uh... Uh, raping a young boy and others it was raping a young girl uh, okay. I, heard, I heard twins I heard all kinds of versions <laughs> of that um, and you know I, I think that the truth of the matter is is not too far removed from that that the like that post-soviet withdrawal post um, really societal collapse while the mujahideen fought each other mm-hmm. led to you know absolute anarchy and oh, for sure. Yeah. And so in, you know, in the South and in, in Kandahar, um, in one district, people look to kind of the one honest broker who they saw in the district who had been a Mujahideen, but then with, withdrew from the infighting. And so therefore was kind of had his hands clean um, and turned to these religious students, right. um, Taliban, who were seen as having, um, you know, clean morals, virtuous, a virtuous purpose. And they cleaned up their district and, you know, like chased the bandits off of the roads. And, um, and then it grew from there, from district to district and onwards. Um, You know, the exact amount of involvement by Pakistani intelligence to support this movement uh, of others, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's kind of hard to pick out. Yeah, but, it's pretty murky. Yeah, yeah, but I think I think there's a, a a grain of truth to this idea that um, average Afghans were fed up with with anarchy and fed up with the criminality and looked to really almost anyone who would uh, you know would clean it up, even if their interpretation of of how society should be structured, should act, etc., was quite, uh, you know, it's quite harsh. That quite draconian, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, to a lot of people in that time, that was a trade-off that that they were willing to make. Right. Okay. Because basically, we've 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 gotten sort of at the, you know, the nadir of our society, and as a consequence, anybody who could get us above that, and even if they've got some pretty harsh methods, it sure as hell is better than you know warlords running rampant around the country. That that's right, um, and and this is a really fine line to try to draw. But I mean, part of the reason that the Taliban still exist is that they they have a constituency in Afghanistan. Absolutely, right? Like it's even Afghans like to kind of point out, oh, these aren't really Afghans; these are they're from Pakistan, they're yeah, Chechen, yeah. they're this, they're that. It's like, yeah, yeah okay, there there are those people, but there is a, there is a constituency in in Afghanistan that share these views. Right. And so, um, and that changes the tone and tenor of the conflict, you know, cause now you're, you're not protecting Af- Afghans from some foreign threat. You're protecting some Afghans from other Afghans. Exactly. And yeah. And yeah so, so that, that's kind of part of what I wanted to show with that, with that novel, because it, it's, it centers on, a, an unnamed mullah who runs a, a school for boys, for orphan boys, and wants nothing to do with all the chaos going on around him, but gets kind of sucked in um, to the conflict when he starts to, to make a stand over various moral issues. Oh, and okay. you, it, it kind of invites the reader 
to identify with with people in this chaotic situation. And what I what I hope is the reader, you know, initially says, yeah, that, that's they made the right decision. I would do the same thing in their shoes. And the next thing, I, you know, hey, that's that's the right decision. I would do the same thing in their shoes until, you know, you get to the end and it's like, oh, my God. I can't believe that I stayed on this bus this long. <laughs> and now, now look what's going on. And it's only at the very end that actually, uh, this is, you know, spoiler alert, but it, this says, you know, and P.S., these people are the Taliban. Interesting. Okay. Now, so you, you've got these two works of fiction, and then you decide to write, and, you know, this, this blood washing blood. And I want to repeat the, the subtitle here. It's Afghanistan's 100-Year War. You know, a lot of people, I think, forget that, when it comes to Afghanistan, we saw the Soviet invasion after, you know, Boxing Day of 1979, lasted the better part of a decade. They got the shit beat out of them, essentially, by these guys with Lee Enfield rifles, it seemed like, and, sand, you know, and sand missiles provided by the Americans and Pakistanis. But people forget that, you know, Afghanistan had been the graveyard, uh, not just of the predecessor to the Soviets, i.e. the Russian czars uh, in the 19th century, but also the British army. Uh, didn't do so well in Afghanistan. So with this book on the on the, you call it Afghanistan's Hundred Year War, it doesn't go quite far as back as the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. But was it your intention to show that this this rule by the Taliban and the fact that Afghanistan as a as a territory had defeated some of the world's best armies is not a new phenomenon? So so in essence, no. Because I <laughs> I got it completely wrong then. <laughs> no, but this is it, and this is what I this is really why I wrote the book actually because a lot of you know intelligent informed decisions or informed opinions you know are along the lines of what what you're saying and and I think it, it there, there's a trap that we fall into with that okay. with that line of thinking and that essentially that that the fighting's about us right <laughs> that it's about the invaders oh, you know it's gotcha gotcha it's really okay not because. Even during the Soviet period, the majority of, of casualties weren't Russians. They were Afghans. Yeah. They were Afghans. As is usually the case, right? It's the, it's the local people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever. Well, and and they, they're not armed. They're not trained as soldiers. Well, but no, but even Afghan soldiers. There were way more Afghan soldiers fighting for the communist government oh, okay. who, who died than Russian soldiers fighting for it. You know, because again, there was a constituency. There were people who thought, yeah, this... This is the way to modernization. And so I, what I recognized, you know, in, in talking, in being in Afghanistan, talking to people who uh, were in positions where, where they, were, they allegedly knew what was going on and, uh, you know, were being paid for their analysis. Um, I didn't, I, no one I talked to could really put their finger on when the war in Afghanistan started. And I, I would I would ask people, so when, when do you think this war started? And, and you know, your kind of typical uh, gung ho American response would be, well, you know, when they hit the twin towers. Yeah, okay, that's when that's when your involvement began. But clearly, that's not the right answer. Right? And people would say, well, the Soviet invasion. You know, and I said, well, let's be clear, they were invited. You know, it was a Soviet intervention to support a communist government. It's not really an invasion, but okay, that's. I don't think that's true either because there was already conflict going on by the time before the Soviets arrived. So then people are like, oh, it's, you know, the Afghan, uh, Anglo-Afghan, you know, war, the third war, the second war, the first war. And I'm like, okay, okay, but they're not, those aren't really connected to what's happening today. Or people okay. say, oh, you know, Alexander the Great, they, these people always fight. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's a cop out, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, okay. 
I, I kind of became obsessed with this. And I was like, when, like, when did this fight actually start? And, and in my, my research and my, my thinking, my talking to Afghans, uh, my digging through a lot of, of dusty tomes, um, I believe that it's the 20th of February, 1919, <laughs> which oh. is very specific. Um, okay. Walk me through this. Yeah. So th- that was when um, Almanullah Amir's, um, he became the Amir. His father um, uh, died. He, he was on a hunting expedition and someone put a rifle, uh, sorry, a pistol in his ear and, and shot him. Um, and it might've been his son, um, might've been at the behest of his son, but Almanullah Amir took the throne on that day. And he was um, a real modernizer. You know, he saw himself as the Afghan Ataturk, right? Um, so he did all kinds of stuff that sounds really familiar to us today. He's like, we're going to put girls in school and I'm going to make my wife, the queen, the queen, the minister of education to make sure it happens. We're, we're going to start sending people on scholarships to Europe to, to get university educations. Um, we're going to increase literacy. We're going to industrialize. Um, we're going to abolish Sharia law and replace it with a civil law code. He did all this stuff that, that, you know, we did post 9-11. And the reaction, you know, to this was um, the whole country went apeshit, Uh (laughs) essentially. And and he was deposed. Um, But in that first year after he he tried to modernize, um, there was major fighting in the east of the country where the tribes rose up ostensibly over the issue of child marriage, like they were, cause they were pro child oh, marriage. Okay. Oh, okay. In fact, what they were okay. really pro was that the government had no business telling them who could and couldn't get married. Okay. And then okay. you see, you know, an Afghan army, uh, a regular army trained by Turks marching out to fight the tribes. And, and man, it, it just, it, the whole thing just smelled so much like the American intervention and the Russian intervention before that. Um, okay, so 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 Afghanistan, you know, like you said, you, you, and you're right. You you could go as far back as Alexander, because that's as far east as he got before he bit it, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so f- from your perspective, then it we know that wars and conflicts are really tough to nail down. They're try to they're really hard to figure out. You know, can we whittle this down to one thing that's the primary factor here? Mm-hmm. So from mm-hmm. your perspective, having looked at Afghanistan, having been there. What do you think is at the heart of the problem of Afghanistan? If the, if I can even ask, if that's a fair question to ask. Yeah, I it's it, you know, it's a gross oversimplification for me to say this, but I think it's it's really this. It's um it's a conflicting opinions uh over where the pole of power sits. Okay. Uh, where the kind of where power rests between three poles be the central government Mm-hmm. local or tribal government and religious authorities. Okay. And so you kind of see through the last hundred years of history that everybody's got their hand on that stick and they're trying to pull it in one direction or the other. Um, you know, cause part of modernization under Amanul Amir was, um, was really the centralization of power under, under his government. Um, whereas, you know, you sort of fast forward to the Taliban it's their religious authority that they're standing on. Um, and even today, they, they haven't really created a modern state. You know, they're the government, but they the ministries don't work the way that a government would be expected to work. Um, 
they're they're not they haven't created a centralized government at all. And okay. they they allow a certain amount of power to local leaders because that's kind of how they keep on top of this very wobbly pile of power brokers. Right. Um you know, and after 9-11, I mean, there was a lot, well, after the, the constitutional lawyer Jurga in 2004, there's like a lot of um, discussion and debate about how centralized a government is appropriate. Um, most of the Afghan voices were saying we should not be very centralized. This needs to be a very flat government where power is dispersed because we've seen what happens otherwise. Um and uh, allegedly, it was you know, American intervention to kind of sort of put their finger in it and say, no, it's got to be centralized because we, we want uh, to have our hands on the controls. And it's easier if there's one set of, you know, one steering wheel, um, you know, with fairly predictable res- results. So, OK, so you talk about the central government, you talked about sort of the warlords, local governments, and you talked about religion for a lot of people. You look at what the Taliban have been up to, and they would go under the assumption that it's mostly about religion. And it's about a particular interpretation of Islam, which the Taliban favor, which is very draconian. It's very fundamentalist. It's very rejectionist of other views. So would you divide the responsibility more or less equally amongst those three actors, or is any one more important than the others? Well, I think, you know, it's changed over time. Um, and, and that's, that's really been the, you know, the conflict is, is about who's ascendant out of, out of those kind of options. Um, it, but it's tricky as well, because, you know, as you say, the, the Taliban espouse a, a particular brand, if you will, of Islam, De- yeah. like Diobandism would yeah. be, would be it. But, but in practice, you know, your local Taliban leaders, you know, are not Islamic scholars, right? And so- right there's a real mix of tribal practice, local practice, uh, you know, some religious practice. It's a real, it's a mix of a bunch of things. So it's, it's not a, even, even with what the government they have now, it's not a theocracy in the way that, that um, Iran is, you know? Right. Okay. Okay. Let, let, let's, let's turn the conversation a, a little bit here, Phil. Um, so you, you know, you've written, these books, uh, some of them were, were published with, uh, with with Dundurn Press, and now then you decide to start your own press, uh, Double Dagger. As I said in the introduction, it's sort of the only Canadian press that deals with military and security issues. So already, you're, you're breaking new ground here. Uh, this, of course, is how we met. Uh, you know, through your, through your company. What were you thinking? Why would you decide, uh, pandemic or not, is maybe an irrelevant you know question to ask, but. What was it that made you want to start Double Dagger? And, and why, do you, why do you think it's different in the Canadian landscape where I've always argued that if you're not Margaret Atwood, nobody cares what you're writing in this country. But why Double Dagger and, and, and why do you think it's different? Yeah, so it was my experience as a writer um, that, that really got me onto this track. Because my, you know, my second novel um, is not Afghan uh, related, but is about um, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua in 78, the uh, oh, Sandinista revolution. So, okay. you know, and again, kind of probing at the truth of the human condition through, as it's exposed through conflict and war. And so, you know, I don't, uh, I don't think that 
that war isn't a genre. It shouldn't be a genre. Uh, military stuff shouldn't really necessarily be a genre. It's just an element in, in stories. And I think actually, you know, if you think about the oldest human stories that we, we still know of, they're all about war and conflict. Like this is, this is, there's something innate in that, that I think reveals really interesting aspects of, of human nature and of, of human character. Um, and so I, to me, these stories are important, but I know that as a writer trying to pitch military stories to publishers in Canada, it was very difficult. I, I did not get a warm reception. You, uh, mean, you and me both, buddy. <laughs> exactly, right? But it's not because there isn't a readership, right? There are people who want to read these stories and read these books, but they're not being served by publishers. And, no. you know, I, I guess it's an open question as to why why not. But um, it's certainly not the flavor of the of the day, week, month, or year in, in publishing. Um and so I saw an opportunity. And as, you know, as a former cavalry officer, if you see a gap, you, you charge into it. That's, that's, how, <laughs> that's how you break the lines. So, so my, my business partner and I, uh, also a, a former cavalry officer, said, let's, you know, tally-ho, let's get, get into it and, and see how this unfolds. And, and what we found, you know, the more that we, we read and that we talked to people and dug in, we saw actually that there was an opportunity um, to have a very updated business model as well, that uh, most publishing companies have long pedigrees here in Canada. They're yeah. bricks and mortar businesses yeah. um, and they're very loath to, or slow to change. But, you know, the way that people buy books nowadays is, is very different. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, the way that a business operates can be very different than a, a bricks and mortar business of 50 years ago. And so, um, we, we just saw an opportunity to to run a very 2023 business uh, with a very clear editorial slant that we, you know, we we publish books that we want to read that have a military cool. security focus. And okay. we know the readership is out there. And so so now now that's our job is really finding that readership and getting our books in front of them. Well, kudos to you uh, for taking a chance in that regard, because as you know, as somebody might as well who started my own business uh, when I retired from the service back in 2015, you are taking a bit of a chance by putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not sure anyone gives a rat's ass what you think uh, or you know your views on things. So I mean, I wish I wish you all the luck in doing so. I'll include this material uh, in the podcast itself, Phil. But how can people get a hold of Double Dagger? And and, and if, if people have an idea they want to you know pitch to you, how can they how can they get in contact with you guys? Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, uh, you know, the website is www.doubledagger.ca. Pretty simple. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a submissions page uh, that explains how uh, how you can submit your submissions. It's it's pretty straightforward and simple. Um, and then you can find us obviously on all the the normal social social media outlets as well. Okay. Um, so yeah, we're 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 definitely interested in hearing from people and what you know what they've got. Because uh, we think these stories need to be told. And I suspect that there's lots of writers had the same reaction that I did when I was pitching. And so these stories are sitting in drawers, you know, all yeah, over the country. Probably. You, um, one last question, Phil. Uh, being as, as we are Canadians and as your company, you know, is Canada based. Are you exclusively looking at Canadian stories and angles or are you open up to anything that's got a military or security aspect to it? Yeah, I would say that we're we're predominantly looking at Canadian uh, Canadian writers, but okay. not 
not necessarily uh, Canadian stories. We're, okay. We're interested pretty broadly and, and not exclusively Canadian writers either. Well, again, I mean, kudos to you for, for doing this. Uh, you know, as I said, we're, we're both aware of the uh, incredible difficulty it seems to be in this country. I mean, my, my first five books, I couldn't get anyone in Canada to give me the time of day. And uh, Americans, American publishers published my first five books. And then when it came time for the sixth one, which I'll get back to in a second, I ended up having to self-publish because even the American publishers uh, thought it wasn't academic enough. And then you guys came around and said, we'd love to take the most recent book, The Peaceable Kingdom, which I've been talking about for years, and, and put out an edition through Double Dagger. So uh, so from a personal perspective, thank you for expressing confidence in, in my ability uh, to write and in my uh, past as a writer. And I, I will definitely wish, I will promote Double Dagger to the nth degree. And I want to wish you and your partner and your company all the best going forward. I appreciate that. But, you know, you made you made getting to yes very easy. Uh, like the Peaceful Kingdom, like it's Canadians don't know their own history. No, they uh, don't. Right. And so when you say, well, you know, it's a book about, uh, you know, terrorism in Canada. People might think, well, that's an awfully short book, buddy. And, and it's not <laughs> like there's a lot. And, and when you actually lay it out, you go like. Okay, there's 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 more there to wrestle with than I think yeah. the average person, you know, acknowledges. I think so. well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say so. But you're absolutely right. It's uh, you know, when your first act of terrorism dates to uh, when you're less than a year old as an independent country, it should tell you something that terrorism's been around in Canada for quite some time. We're, we're, we don't we don't witness it thankfully as often as countries like Somalia and Nigeria and Afghanistan do, but it, it certainly is a phenomenon that we can't forget. So uh, again, Phil, I, listen, thanks for joining me on the podcast and talking not just about Afghanistan, but you know, your own writing process and double dagger. And uh, I've got a sneaking suspicion you guys are going to do very, very well. So I do appreciate taking the time. Hey, I appreciate it very much. So that was my conversation with Phil Halton, the founder of double dagger press and someone who spent some time in Afghanistan. What do you think of our conversation? And, and maybe more specifically, since I ask everyone about Afghanistan, uh, what do you think about the Canadian publishing industry? Do we need more Canadians telling stories about the military and security? Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You'll also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content, want to get more, please go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. It's free. I don't charge anything. Uh, for podcasts and blogs. I'd love to hear your comments and your feedback, perhaps ideas for other podcasts. We'll talk again soon. Until then, take care.